0: What does motion sound like? With Hands free shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com/socks.
1: Welcome to everybody to the Michelle Miao show at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thanks for being here, whether you're here in our air-conditioned auditorium, or you're at home, hopefully somewhere, uh, staying cool and and watching or listening to us online. I want to begin with a quick thanks to our generous sponsors and supporters of this program today. Gilead Sciences, excuse me, Gilead Sciences, is a generous supporter of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club. And thanks to Movable Inc. for helping to make today's program possible. We want to thank our partners at Open House and Open House Leadership Council on Queerness, Race, and Privilege. So we're going to have a lot to talk about today. To get us started and to lead us through our discussion is Michelle Miao. She's the host and producer of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. And if you forget which person she is, just keep remembering she's wearing bright yellow. (laughs) Michelle, take it away.
0: Oh, (laughs) Don't make me cry. You need to save the tears for our panel today, uh, which I am so honored, deeply honored to be on this stage with as I've watched and learned from their work almost every day. Um, Thanks so much for joining me here at the Commonwealth Club. If you're new to the program and here for the first time or watching for the first time, the Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. (laughs) Uh, Today, our discussion is focused on anti-Asian violence, but with a very specific focus, the Queer Trans API Community. And so our speakers today include Morningstar Vansel, who's activist and artist. We have Anjali Rimi, who's president and co-founder of Parivar Bay Area, and Cecilia Chung, who's senior director of strategic initiatives and evaluation for the Transgender Law Center, also health commissioner uh, for San Francisco and founding producer of Transmarch. And there are a lot of ands for all three of our speakers today, and I'm sure you all know. So let's give a warm welcome to our speaker. I selfishly also would like for you to clap again because I think we look and feel amazing and just how beautiful we are as queer trans API people. So it's tradition here. Yes, if you've been to a program, we share coming out stories to kick off. Um, but I thought that, you, you know, you probably have heard each other's coming out stories, especially from our three panelists before. Um, but maybe perhaps we can get specific because it is it's very nuanced when you come out as queer trans API, not necessarily o- only to yourself, but to your API family. Mm-hmm. So let's start
2: with Morningstar. Hi, my name is Morningstar Vancell. I'm also a member of uh, Alexander Hamilton Post 448. We marched in Chinatown after the Chinese were attacked to show support to the Chinese-Americans that were there for them. And I'm also in the leadership council of Open House, so I would like to acknowledge Open House for having me here and Michelle and everybody, everybody else. And um, my coming out story is that I didn't came out to my family because of when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot. And, and the first thing my mother said, if you didn't look like a boy, then nobody will attack you. Because you look like a boy, that's why you always get attacked. And um, the first time I was attacked, I was in San Francisco and I was working at the homeless shelter. When I got out of the shelter, I had the, the, had the say pride, and five men attacked me, and I was scared I was gonna get raped. So I fought back, and a homeless man helped me out and called the police. The police were called, and they took me home. The next day when I went to the police station, there was no report. You know, and um, when I talked to Cecilia Chung about it, she said because nobody got arrested. So there's no, so they didn't have to report about it. Nobody got arrested. So that means that someone like me will not be on the record. And uh, so I went to therapy because it was very traumatic for me, you know, because all my life have been attacked. You know, it could be racism, it could be homophobia, it could be sexism, it could be transphobia, all about. And um, what happened is, it was the year of the dog in 1994, and for the first time, the data uh, that that was gay and lesbian were coming out of the closet at the Chinese New Year. So we had the band, the San Francisco Pride band. You know, there were births. We were behind, and we had rainbow, rainbow dragon right behind us. What we decided to do was to cover our face with the phoenix, you know, rises from the dash. And there was a lot of my brothers and sisters who didn't want to come up to their family, or didn't want to come up to the job because they could get fired. So we had their names in here, all their names. Well, we went to Chinatown. They, they, before we went to Chinatown, there was a lot of intimidation that they're going to attack us. They're going to do something to us. So we went to Chamber of Commerce to ask permission if we could be in a parade. The Chamber of Commerce said, why should we let you be in a parade? They said, because the, year, because the Chinese, uh, the Chinese um, queer people said, it's the year the dog. And that means you have to show loyalty to your family. We are your family. Mm-hmm. So when we went to Chinatown, we had our phoenix, and we had our costume. And then it was translated in Chinese, Japanese, but mostly Chinese. and said, for the first time in history, the gay and lesbian are coming out of the closet. And the first thing we did was took off our masks wow. so that they can see us. And that means we are your family, we are your friends, we are your doctors, we are, we are part of this community. And the elders stood up and bowed down to us to show respect. Mm-hmm. And that was part of my healing, you know. We need voices in the API community. We really need voices. And that's why we're here. That's why I'm here, because, you know, with all the struggle I've been through as an API and being queer, you know, it's important to me to speak up, hoping that other people will come out of the closet and they'll be inspired to come out of the closet. So that's my story. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Cecilia.
3: Okay, so I have a very different story, I think, because um, I am an immigrant from Hong Kong. I was born and raised and left Hong Kong um, to go to school in Australia when I was 15, and then um, migrated to this country with my family in 1984. So my first time when I... um, encounter violence and discrimination, it was in Australia, actually. And um, and it wasn't necessarily about being Asian or being immigrant, but it is about not being white. And because, like, you stand out if your entire class um, are, like, white students, and then there's you, you know. Like, and, and so that's what happened with me. And um, I got a lot of bullying happened to me Um, at the time. You know, like, people would say things like, go back to your country, you know, like, get back to your boat, um, calling me dish face, moon face, um, socket face, um, and also because, you know, like, my my aunt made me rice for lunch. And so it was in, in one of those, like, flask um, and unbeknownst to me like two of the students actually broke a bunch of pencil and stuck it in my in, in my food um, and and you know the kind of things that they do I don't know whether they see that as hate um, they might think that that was funny but you know but it's pretty hurtful you know like, that means that I had to go without lunch and I have to endure all these like like humiliations so that's my australian school years when i came to this country i wasn't very connected with my own well, with the with the san francisco community like because at the time there were a whole bunch of us um coming from hong kong so they were the people that I actually hang out with. Um, So I'm kind of oblivious. You know, it's 1984. That was like um, at the height of the HIV epidemic. But I didn't think that it would affect me because there were no pictures of Asians, or Pacific Islanders um, who has AIDS and died at the time. You know, there were no pictures, no representations. So I thought it wasn't any of my business. Of course, you know, the irony is like, 10 years later, I tested HIV positive myself. Um, So, I have three parts to my coming out stories. The first part was like coming out um, to myself, knowing that I was attracted to boys. I was four years old when the first boy kissed me, and I know that I like being kissed by a boy. So, I don't know what to call it. You know, like, I didn't know, like, what sexual orientation was at the time and definitely didn't know what gender identity was and the second time I came out was when I was 11 when I was playing um, the role of a ballet dancer in one of the school play and and so like so I got the license to put on these like belly dancers outfit and makeup on my face and I felt liberated. That was the first time I actually felt that I felt comfortable in my own skin. And, you know, but that kept a secret to the world um, until I graduated college here in San Francisco and I came out to my mom, and I said, "Mom, I think I want to transition to become a woman." And she said, "Can you do that while your dad is sleeping?" So I say that, that that's not quite what transition is about, you know. Like so, and I don't want to live a lie. So because of that, you know, I didn't speak to my family for three years. And during that time, also, that's when um, I actually lost my jobs um, and I became homeless. And I was, like, engaging in um, street economy to survive. And during that time, I was attacked. And I don't think that I was attacked because I was trans, and I didn't think that it was, I was attacked because I was Asian, but I was attacked because I was a woman, and they want to demonstrate they have power over me. Um, and um, they were trying to sexually assault me, and... Um, when I struggled and fought back, they stabbed me. So, you know, that's when I realized, you know, like, I need to do something for myself. You know, I need to fight for my life. Um, and what that means at that time was 1990, 1995. Um, that means that I need to straighten my life up. You know, I, I need to deal with all these demons and to really find a way to make peace with myself, with the world, and looking at like what that calling was for me. And that's when I started going into um, recovery, and I go into services, and through services, I see how little resources there were for us, and that's when I got into advocacy work. And I've been stuck in the advocacy world ever since. Um, so I, I want to say I actually have learned a lot from the LGBT community, especially the BIPOC LGBT community here in San Francisco, especially when I was on the Board of Pride, like with Morningstar, for instance. And, um, and my first mentor was a black gay man um, who, uh, what church was, what church was Calvin? The City of Refuge? Um, no, no, no. Uh, he was with glide yes. oh, yeah so so yeah so, glide. Yes. so yes. he was with glide and you know like and so that was the first time i realized that religion and my queerness can coexist in me um but it doesn't mean that i i get religious but it's good to know you know <laughs> so i don't have to like focus so much on being someone who's condemned to go to hell um i'm gonna stop here because i can go on and on you know um but I think I want to save some room for my sister, Anjali. <laughs>
4: Thank you. Uh, um, I'm Anjali me pronouns she, her, they, them. And it's really an honor to be on the stage, but more importantly to be with Morningstar, who has really trailblazed and with my mentor and someone I've looked up for the last 20 years, Cecilia. So I'm getting a little emotional, uh, but, I, you know, coming out... I think happens, in my instance, out of two things, either out of fear or love. When I came out as API, as a South Asian, you know, we are trained to not think that we are Asian. and uh, We are the ambiguous non-whites, so we try to not fit into this mold of API, we want to be more attached to the white, and we kind of feed into the white supremacy in the society. So I have a lot of coming out stories and I don't want to like hold everyone up. But the three instances I'll give you is I come out every single day. Some of you know me as Remy. Some of you know me as Anjali. Because this is my journey. I'm coming out every single day as who I am. And coming out is not just. And the second point there is as a transgender woman, I'm coming out as a South Asian And leading an organization that is the only of its kind in all of America, it's an everyday process, whether I speak to somebody at the federal or state or city or a community here or in Uganda or in India or somewhere else in Europe, like I am always coming out. And I think it's exhilarating because I am inviting others to learn my journey. I think the intersectional burden of being an API, a South Asian, and a trans person who comes from the culture of where it's integral part of my culture, my anthropology, it's a whole different level. So I'll give you one or two instances, and feel free to cut me off, Michelle. You know, when I first told, um, employment has always been a very hard place for me to come out. Um, And I have been fired, and I've been thrown out of this country, and I came back. I came to Bay Area in 2003. Prior to that, I was in graduate school in Idaho, and I came to this country a month uh, before 9-11. And unknown to me, I know, I forget gender identity and all that, I didn't know what the terms racism meant. So here's this young 22-year-old who's like, I'm in this country, now I can make everything happen. I uh, wore a blue brown sari, and I'm starting to perform with a drag name. I Wanna Rimjab. <laughs> uh, and it was going well. Uh, that's where Rimi comes from, by the way. I'm no sacred person by any means. Um, and I was walking and I got attacked. And I don't think the people who attacked me knew I was transgender, but it was in a space after 9 11 where hate crimes were rampant. And I had to decipher or come out to the authorities. And it happened on the campus of where I was studying. I'll leave out the university. And they refused to file a complaint. And that was a coming out of a different level because the hospital tried to treat me as a woman. But, you know, anatomically, they're like, oh, you're a man. And then the other coming out story is when I came out at my work, when I was in a much Uh, higher level, mid mid to senior level, and I came out and I transitioned, but I showed up as my whole authentic South Asian self. So I would wear a sari uh, to occasions and to like, you know, the bindi or the red dot, as some of you know, uh, and show up. And the biggest struggle was with the South Asian uh, peers at my workplace, because for them, it was very problematic that a man was wearing a sari and showcasing their culture because they have forgotten their own roots. And it was a whole other piece where I ended up leaving that company. But it wasn't even about me coming out as trans, because that company did what it did, but it was that whole package deal that they got, which was too much for them to handle. Um, Outside of that, I think coming out to me is a journey where we can build communities together. I lived in stealth for over... A decade people didn't even know anything remotely that I was trans I enjoyed the cis pleasures and obviously I grew in my corporate life and I was able to like attain what that uh, capitalistic American dream is Um, but uh, you know I'll pause there
1: Um, (laughs) I'm I'm interested and Cecilia you spawned this question in me when you were mentioned uh, being estranged from your parents for three years and such how has your, how have your connections to your families positive or negative, uh, regarding coming out and your connection to them or identification with them or rejection of them? I mean, how has that happened for each of you? And more importantly, how, what has it meant to you? You know, what, what, what did you want to keep or retain or change in that relationship? And maybe we'll just go the other way down I aisle. So start with you, Anjali.
4: Thank you. Um, You'll get to hear me again (laughs) so quickly. I think for me, family is much more than just blood. It's that that comes in when the whole world walks out. And that is exactly what happened to me. When I was seven, I told my mom, I'm going to blossom and be the most beautiful daughter you ever wanted. Because she only had sons. And since that day to date, she has been my biggest rock. She has been very much a victim of domestic abuse, misogyny, um, and racism. She's a new immigrant to this country today, and yet she is there every single time. Today is a too long of a day for her to be out. Um, but I think. But the rest of the family was almost ashamed of me. Very bad things happened to me, which I'll not share to trigger nobody. By the time of fourteen, I probably was. Raped a few times, sexually abused, thrown off a building, uh, thrown out of a bus—many things happen. And my my parents, especially my dad, especially would—I'll say this—I beat the shit out of me, and he would blame me for ent- enticing these men. But then there's a whole other family that I have looked up to because I come from this beautiful, strong South Asian Hitra Kinnar culture where we take in our own. Because we have, I'm a privileged person who has been able to come to America, but many just get on the train and go to another city and start all over or another country. They cross the borders uh, illegally or whatever the word is, sorry, not to mean say illegally. Um, and so I have a trans mother uh, who took me out the streets out of San Francisco. In, I came here and very quickly I was out of a job. And some good human who was API took me in, and I, uh, I was living under his building uh, on Tenderloin and Leavenworth, and he was like, this one looks uh, different from all the other homeless people. You come upstairs. And we ended up, you know, he, he was so generous that it was a 200, I believe it's a 250 square foot apartment, and he had a bunk bed he bought, and I stayed on the top, uh, but then you know, eventually I I was going, experiencing a lot of homelessness. And so I had a trans mother who took me in. And that same trans mother took me in when I was getting out of a abusive relationship many years later. And so I'm very proud of the family that I've built, um, that support me, that put up with me, honestly. Um, You know, folks right here on this panel who I treat as my family. And most folks know I don't have a filter. So I just, see everything as they <laughs> is. So if you're my family, you put up with me and I put up with you. I'm as much there for you as much as you're there for me. Mm-hmm. And finally, I'll just say that I think it's been a long, long journey, interestingly, for me to um, bring to a sense to the younger generations Um, And in in my instance, for example, like my brother was the one who kept failing his grades and accepting my gender transition. And he only 2009 he came around. But I think I see that as a greater movement where we are not building family with our elders in this community, especially in the API community, where we're trying to go off and do something on our own. And I think that doesn't help us build this family that we can look and be part of. Thank you. Thank you. Cecilia.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Anjali. I think that it's really important to highlight, you know, like the importance of chosen family, of course, I had a lot of like shared experience, you know, around um, chosen families, when I went into recovery, I have adopted like 11 gay brothers <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and they took me under their wing. So it's a good thing to have like 11 brothers. So, because you don't have to worry about people harassing you. They will like stand between you and those harassers. Um, and, you know, in my early recoveries also, I was really damaged um, to the point that I couldn't, I couldn't get to the bus stop by myself. Um, so my all my eleven adopted gay brothers would walk with me, stay with me, you know, at the bus stop until I got on the bus. So so that's the kind of family um, that meant something for me at the time. You know, when I didn't have my own family to lean on. Um, but that changed, you know, since I got in recovery and I started to build my life back, you know, like I reconciled with my mom. Um, some of you might have seen that TV series, <laughs> When We Rise. Well, it's not quite the same, but, you know, but we did recon- reconcile. Um, and, um, and then it was the rest of the family. Now I have my family back in my life. And it's really a spiritual journey because I got to be by my grandparents side when they were passing away and I got to be there to take care of my dad when he passed away three years ago and had we not reconciled that wouldn't have happened and I think that that would be a very devastating regret in my life, and I am so glad, you know, that I have them back in my life. And because of that, I think the biggest message I have for, you know, like for all the LGBT um, kids out there who might be estranged with their family, that don't give up hope, you know, you know, because like love transcends, and you know, and what we need to do is really find that narrative and find you know like that little focus point focal point you know and focus on that Um, ups and downs is it's like normal and you know and for the longest time i thought i was the only queer black horse in the family but lo and behold my cousin um has had a child, and they identify as non-binary, living in Australia. So there you go. You know, like, so I'm, I'm finally not alone. I'm so looking forward to meeting them like one day. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I just talked to my mother this year after 20 years of not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. What was that? Um, yes, um, she's dying. She got a month or two months to live. She wanted to see me. And the first thing I told her, I'm willing to see her. The condition, let's not talk about the past. Let's enjoy the moment right now. And when I spent time with my mother, she let me sleep in the bed with her. And she was affectionate. And I'm not used to her being affectionate towards me. So she had accepted me, you know. And... I buried my stepdad died, but like I said, we didn't talk for 22 year, 20 years. And, and I'm so grateful that I'm in, also in recovery, you know I'm so grateful that I have forgiveness, I have love. And because of that, you know, uh, I got mentored. you know, I have my API family mentoring me. And also I mentor other API youth, you know, that's important that there's a mentoring going on. One of the things that I appreciate my life today is I do have family, which is my community. And uh, I'm grateful that I'm active at Open House. It's LGBTQ plus seniors. And I attend to a lot of their um, support group so um when my friend got see my ex lover died of AIDS, you know and and i'm grateful i was in san francisco because when i was in colorado i was a cop i got kicked out being a cop because i was gay and nobody will hire me because by looking at me you can tell i'm queer so nobody will hire me So my family had told me, you better open San Francisco because they got gay rights. So when I came to you, I came to your broken heart, no place to call my home, nobody, nobody, no family, you know. And the people in San Francisco opened their heart to me. They opened the door for me. And the best of all, they gave me a job so that I get my dignity back. So I am very grateful that I had that opportunity. Thank you for letting me share. I want to thank all
0: of you uh, for being so, continue to be so courageous each and every time, you know, the community asks for your stories and how important they are. Um, Hearing them over and over again and then comparing them to the stories that we're seeing in mainstream media as they report a little bit more now on anti-Asian violence. It's obvious, and glaringly so, that what's missing from the narratives are the LGBTQIA plus stories. And you know, the cisgender, more oftentimes heterosexual AAPI leaders who are now starting to pay attention, collect data on some of these reports, were even in the news, you know, as journalists and reporters, are not necessarily gathering these stories as well. For example, in a trigger warning, I'll go back to the shooting in Atlanta in which six Korean um, uh, women were murdered. There was this big conversation about the hypersexual, hypersexualization of Asian women and their bodies and gender violence. But what was very much missing is the conversation around how that impacts and affects LGBTQIA+. APIs um, it's almost a daily occurrence in our life you all have shown us through your stories uh, how much you have been through I would love to hear your unvarnished uh, and open you know, comments around this other kind of violence which is the erasure and silencing of our voices and sometimes from our own broader API community Who'd like to go first?
3: I guess I'll go first because <laughs> they've both gone first. So I think that it's, it's really... It's really disheartening to see how we are being viewed and the stigma. It continues to like impact our lives as queer LGBTQ folks in general. and um, And then the the anti asian piece is just like the icing on the cake because like when you peel this onion as soon as you stop at lgbt it seems like those violence are justifiable so people say oh you deserve it and then it got you know, like, um, sweep under the rug. And um, and sadly, it still hasn't changed much um, today. And, you know, when, when we look at the shooting in Atlanta, um, you see that that ch- shooter actually blamed those women, you know, like, for for being temptation to him. You know, like, and, you know, and for us, you know, like, we we get to hear that from the conservatives like how we indoctrinate their children and so we deserve to die we deserve to burn in hell so it doesn't really matter what race we are as long as there are like sexism as long as there are transphobia homophobia and also white supremacy around and classism um we are going to see this you know like so And the underlying piece about these are definitely about like their lack of understandings and acceptance of who we truly are.
2: Yeah.
4: Yeah, just to, you know, add to that, I think it's very layered Um, when we start looking at an individual for what their intersectionality is. And we don't live in a society that's multiculturalism-driven, but it's very white supremacist. And I've said that a few times because I honestly believe that that's what we're breathing every single day, right this moment. And we don't fight the overlapping marginalizations that we have, whether it's anti-blackness in the API community or the xenophobia in the greater LGBT community of immigrants and refugees. We are going to continue to see this. And I think the case in point is that these large movements, and I hope I don't get sued for saying their names, the Black Lives Matter or the Stop AAPI Hate, I'd like to see what data they have of this intersectionality. I was trying to find this at a California level, and as latest as yesterday, I was being told, no, there isn't that data really available. I'd like to see and challenge what we see at these protests that happened Happen in San Francisco, which are very needed, um, of why they do not highlight or bring about the victims that are QT API. You know, two instances I'll give you. July 23rd, I was attacked um, right here in the city. And June 5th, there was a Nepalese queer, uh, Nepalese man, sorry, I mean to. Um, uh, discuss too much of their personal identity in Oakland, a day after we had done the QTAPI gathering, and they have never been brought into this movement of Stop API Hate because I think we're all operating from a mindset of scarcity, and we want to be the ones that can fit in and exist and prevail. And until we kind of break down those barriers, and I say this with a heavy heart because I think we kind of pit against each other, in marginalized communities and when there's such dissidence from the cis heteronormative folks that we don't exist or we can't be in their spaces it becomes very difficult interacting with them and the the pandemic showed it to us and i was witness to seeing uh, just the south asian community you know was transactional was conditional oh can you do a photo op Can you be the trans person we have supported so we can look progressive and inclusive? Oh, the pandemic is over. We no longer have any support we can give you. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time when the pandemic happens. It's so transactional that it breaks your heart because you are trying to live. The gender identity is just one part of your dimension, right? You're trying to be in this community. You want to speak the language. You want to eat the food and you want to be part of it. And that's why I think it's so important to invite folks to have these tough, uncomfortable conversations, which, you know, I think the QTAPI coalition, if you don't know, has been around for about three, four years now, built in San Francisco and happened across California. It took us a Herculean task to get to non-LGBT uh, API organizations right here in the Bay Area to understand and recognize that this is a space we need. This is a need to raise the flag in Japantown right here. Like It, it definitely is something that is a very difficult effort Um, because we recognize the privilege that we don't have as queer trans people. We are not in these leadership positions where decisions are made for the entirety of our community. And I can go on and on, but I think um, if you look at the entirety of the state or the city, wherever there's AAPI, I was recently talking to some department that was working with immigrants, and the AAPI Justice Coalition has never heard of... uh, (laughs) API trans immigrant folks um, and or, or have, you know, our our inclusion and in part of it. I'm not trying to, you know, single out them out, but I think it's a very difficult uh, journey that we have to transcend because I think, you know, um, rest in peace, the queen. But three fourths of this world was colonized and every Asian country, the global south, as I say, has been put with this mindset that we got to belong. And to belong, we got to leave behind our identity. And oh, homo, being trans or being queer is a Western thing. Like, all these things need to be broken down. And that's why I walk into all those spaces knowing very well that some auntie is going to give me the stairs. And some uncle is going to make a pass at me to ask me to come to the restroom with him. Or and like, really, <laughs> I don't really at this point, I used to be scared, but at this point, if, if it's not me, then who else? Mm-hmm. And that's how we're going to start this conversation, which will be comfortable, but we'll enjoy the buffet together.
2: <laughs> 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 um, education is very important to me. I was at the Human Rights Commission with Cecilia Chong. She was our commissioner. At that time, it was like bi, gay, and lesbian. There was no transgender there's no queer and stuff like that. And we had to take classes, you know, how to approach someone, you know, how to talk to someone about trans issue and stuff like that and how to be non-judgmental. So the rest of the alphabet got coming. We even have intersex at that time. This is 15 years ago, 20 years ago. We have intersex, we have transgender, we have queer, we have allies or asexual. We have the rest of the plus, right? And then gender queer, gender fluid, and so on. G- gender non-binary, and so on. So I, had, I was in the closet. That's the reason why I took this class, thinking, well, maybe if I research, then I will know something about me, because I'm a drag king too, and I'm non-binary. And when I was a kid, uh, when I was a kid, my grandma knew I was different. My grandma knew I was different. And, and told me that if you want people to love you, you need to be real. You cannot be, you cannot be in the closet. That's what my grandma told me. She knew I was different, Right. So come to San Francisco. And like I said, I was in the closet for a long time. And when I was in the closet, I'm hearing stories from my trans brothers and sisters. They've been attacked a lot. And then I noticed when you look at Bay Area Reporter or all the newspaper, there's no report on on attacking queer API or any queer people. There's nothing in the news, you know, about the attack. And, and that's why I was in the closet because I was scared that I can be single out. And then once I came out, once I came out, I feel relief to be real, you know. And I have compassion because what's so weird when I start telling my story, my brothers and sisters will come out and say, that's my story too. This is what happened to me. 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 I feel like I wasn't alone because for the longest time I felt alone. And now I don't feel alone. And all I think about is the young people, because there's a lot of young people coming out. Mm-hmm. And by giving the voice on that stories, hopefully it will give them hope. And that's what I'm here for, to tell my story. Thank you.
1: We were discussing in the green room before we came out here how, uh, you know, talking about... So many more people these days are, are focusing on issues of racism and sexism and homophobia and, and, and such and, uh, you know, what that might portend for the future. And, and my thoughts were kind of like, I think there are a number of us in this room who are old enough to remember in the 1970s, that was also a time when issues of racism and sexism and, you know, kind of addressing some serious structural, social and political and economic issues in the country were were. Brought to the fore and you know people can probably agree, have a good argument over how long they think that lasted but what I want to ask each of you is um, if you believe that you know there has been a bit of a an awakening among uh, at least a portion of the people what can be done what should be done to not just keep it going but to focus it on areas and 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 the places that can have the most effect and, and the most good. So Anjali, you're first.
4: I think um, in the 20 plus years that I have been on my true journey, um, I've seen the organizing get more meticulous, get more thorough, get more sophisticated. And obviously technology has forwarded us, you know, this right here. Many folks are watching virtually too. But I think the biggest uh, when there is that we are organizing and in a space like San Francisco we are the template to the world and for many things and I think we can continue to do that but the introspection we need to do is how are we actually going to come together it's as simple as that and that coming together needs to be centering the most marginalized and You've heard me say this, but unless we center black trans folks in the movements, in social justice causes, we are never going to get liberation. And the layer above that is unless we center trans folks in spaces that are of a certain marginalization, whether that's immigration, unemployment, rural or economic you know, uh, depri- depri- deprivation, we're never going to get to that ultimate liberation. And also, I want to say something around this journey that we are all on. We are all struggling, and I don't mean to be pessimistic by saying that, but, you know, it is a journey for each one of us to be authentically ourselves, to bring our whole selves into spaces, and it takes a minute. And I'll be the last person to say I don't judge people but it's really hard not to because you are unaware, you're ignorant of what the other person's journey is because you want to feel that you are the one who exists in that moment because you've struggled so hard to get where you did. So that, I think, is the sentiment that prevails in the newer generations, not that I'm that old, um, you know <laughs> that where we have to like really have them understand that an intersectional identity, and I'll take a case in point of how much... And if you see my Instagram posts, you often know this. I get a lot of hate. And so much hate has come my way in the last three years, since when, since 2018, when I've really come out as a trans person. I've been doing advocacy work, but I used to do it as like in the background or I would like their face or like you were mentioning, like at one trans march, I had, what is that called? A uh, Unibomber outfit, as people call it. I didn't even know what it was. It was like these glasses and all of this. I'm starting to realize that we are trying to all belong. And in that process, we are harming each other and hurting each other. And it's so important for us to understand each other. And the hate that comes to me is also from within the community. It's from being who I am for my religion, being who I am in the South Asian diaspora, being who I am for being an immigrant. Because again, we're all competing for these very limited resources Whoever is listening, we need more for trans-queer people. And we want to be the person who gets it, right? And only a few of us have the mentality of collective liberation. And so I really profess to the younger generations to not be part of a movement that's so powerful that's going to get attached to a cancel movement where it's going to really erase some of us that are actually trying to be part of your... Uplifting. Be there as the conduits and the catalysts to see you prosper and you do this movement. Because you know mortals, we're not all going to be here. But it's the ancestors who have come before us in San Francisco or within my diaspora—the hijras, the Kinners, the Apsaras that have given me the strength to continue. So um, that's that's my message there. Thank you, Cecilia.
3: So it's interesting that you asked this question um, and we had that conversation. I think that the 60s has something similar also, the anti war, you know, like, and all the like, labor movements and, you know, civil rights movement. And then, you know, 70s, you have the race riot, you know, like, and, you know, like, and, and again, you know, like, anti war. And we're back to square one again. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you ask me if we've learned anything, I said, I don't think so, you know, like, because we're still approaching them the same way. Um, and, you know, when we talk about hate, um, I, I truly believe that that kind of hate and resistance came from extreme fear. Um, that when you listen to the conservative talking about immigrants, when you talk, t- hear the conservatives talk about, you know, queer, You know, it's all about indoctrinations, they're replacing us, you know, and that kind of, like, fear-mongering tactics, it's, like, spreading like wildfire. Um, But there's one silver lining, is that, you know, like we're at the age of, like, the Internet. And so that's where history is being collected. And so... The internet never forgets, so all these like different events that happen you know it will continue to stay stay there you know and and I think that you know that 's hopefully you know like, there will be people who can unnerve some of these and compare the differences of these different decades because we haven 't really changed you know like so in the 70s we have um, similar like kind of riots, you know, police violence and then 80s the devastating pandemic hits called HIV and AIDS look what happened to COVID um, so, so I think that there's a lot more conversations we need to have and you know, and more importantly those conservatives and haters we should just give them free therapy until they realize that we are yes. not threatening to them yes,
1: yes. Thank
2: you. Um, After I got attacked, you know, the police show up. Mm -hmm. At that time, they didn't offer free therapy. Now, if you're a domestic violence survivor or you've been attacked, they offer you at least free therapy. But when, in those days, the old days, there was no free therapy, right? And, We didn't have support then, you know. So what I learned is even though it's a little bit better, but we still need a lot of work. I'll give you an example. During the AIDS epidemic, gay people, queer people were being blamed for bringing AIDS and HIV. Now they're talking about monkeypox. And they still blaming gay people and queer people for bringing monkeypox. You know what I mean? So nothing has changed, especially during COVID. I will never forget. I'm taking an F train and F trains, nothing's Castro, this and that. Somebody tried to attack me saying that I brought COVID into this country, you know, and I don't have to tell them I'm not Chinese, but you know they just look at us all the same all a p i look the same to them and I get attacked, you know at the f train and and after I got attacked, the police was called. they offered me therapy, but there was no follow up, you know. And that's what we need nowadays. If domestic violence or if you've been attacked, they need to follow up to make sure you're okay, that you got your therapy, you got your needs met. But what's going on, what we struggle in the 70s is the same thing now. Nothing has changed. And all I could focus on is young people, hoping that I, if I mentor the young people, when I'm gone or I'm very old, I can do the work, that they can take my place. So those are the people that I focus on. Thank you. Oh, by the way, yeah.
3: Chinese didn't bring the virus here.
2: I know, yeah. but that's what Trump <laughs> said. No, that's what the, you know, our mm-hmm. president said. But they still attack us. They didn't know any different. They still attack us, yes. Oh, that president... Yes. Uh, Anyway. Um. We need therapy
0: for that. A lifetime. Yeah. We have uh, just a few minutes left, and um, I normally will try to end with an inspirational question, but unfortunately, I have a challenging question for all of you. If we take all of your stories, take all the years of activism, and um, we take your trauma, and then... We also listened to the fact that each of you had said telling our stories really matter. Um, there's a scarcity game that we play within our communities. We have to build coalition with one another. As we take all of those concepts, therein lies an answer in which there could be some kind of solution, one thing that we all can be doing. Now, the challenge is, right, when we started hearing all these... Um, stories recently of anti-Asian attacks. We did have API elected leaders stand up and do some work and miraculously get some anti-Asian hate laws passed, especially here in California. We did hear companies speak up and say, all of a sudden I'm donating millions you know, to Asian organizations or who are doing the work in keeping Asian people safe. I don't have the metrics in terms of how that trickles down to queer... AAPI folks, nor do I have the metrics for even how the LGBTQIA plus community with its limited resources stand up, or do you know what I mean, have specifically given for help in our community, which sounds like we do need it. Like you can't just say one day, hey, I'm going to ask somebody for help because I'm Asian, or one day I'm going to ask this LGBTQ organization because I'm LGBTQIA plus. We can't separate those identities. And so that the challenge, the challenging part of this question is, well, who are we supposed to talk to? Who do we ask for help? How do you prioritize your activism, prioritize who you speak to in order to get the help that we need? I'm going to start with Anjali only because. (laughs) Yes. I feel like this is you've been waiting for this moment. <laughs>
4: uh, okay, since you asked, uh, you start with each other. And I'll give you an example. You know, the vice president of Parivar is an Indo Caribbean, African, Caribbean, South Asian trans woman who is so different from my journey. And until I heard her journey, I didn't realize that not only we are sharing this oppression, but we're also sharing the resilience with one another. And so I really, really ask for us to talk to each other because we are no better until we are all together in this. And that is ultimately how I think if you have any success stories in San Francisco, that is how it has happened. You know, whether it's, at a city agency level with the Office of Transition Initiatives or with a Global South, you know, coalition or the QTAPI coalition, it's happened because we've taken a second not to judge and really heard each other's stories. But I think we should also recognize that there are people in power, cis-heteronormative people that need to hear our stories And we need to be powerful beyond measure in being in their spaces, in being able to have access to them and require them to be available to us. We elected them or we helped the society help them employ their privilege to get where they did. And so they rightfully owe us many things, right? There's no negotiation about that. And the third folks that we need to talk to is the newer generations. I am getting old, I'll admit. So I am looking... (laughs) 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 I am looking for the newer generations to bring all of us together. Because I don't think when I was transitioning, I knew what non-binary was. You know, it's something that we are all learning. The LGBTQ alphabet soup only goes growing bigger... And ultimately, we shouldn't have to go some say, I'm a gay person, I'm a queer person. We should just be able to assimilate and live our life only. So I think I really look to talking to the new generations to kind of guide them on the right path, uh, to really look out for the folks that have been left behind, the folks that have been attacked, the folks that have been doing the works in the 70s, and the folks who's, who are becoming unsung heroes and you know, this morning I was looking at a photo from Trans March, and it was a photo of Rachna Mudraboina, who is, like been the key, key person that has saved thousands of lives in India through our work. And then I was looking at Nikki Kalma. You know, these are individuals who have done work for decades. And I can't say this without getting emotional, but how much of mental trauma and the journey and what all they have to endure, even today you know, to be themselves but still doing this work, that is something that newer generations can never forget because at the end of the day, we have built a better society for them, and I have been a recipient of that, and we have got to make sure we talk to our elders and we make sure we center them, and that's how we further this movement. Thank you.
3: Hmm. So I I have a little bit different angle in looking at this because to me, um, this work is, yes, you know, like there is definitely trauma attached to the work, but there's more love than trauma attached to the work. Like otherwise, you know, like why would I feel compelled to continue to help people? That's because of that love, like we all have in in all of us, you know, that we call unconditional love, because we just want to raise money, build a better world, and then move on. Raise
4: money. (laughs) Well, but
3: that's also where part of the unconditional love needs to happen is with the resources, funders, you know, like if they can ask for fewer reports, but more focused on learning from the community what needs to be funded, um, the world might get changed for the better quicker. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't read the book yet, I would highly recommend it. It's Decolonizing Wealth, you know, and, um, and it's really about how do we like pull resources together so it benefits all of us. So just think if you have half a glass of water, you can call that half full or half empty. I have half a glass of water. When I, we come together, we have a full glass. Mm-hmm. So that's why collaborative impact is essential. We need to do cross-movement building, and we need to really learn from each other.
2: Um, What keeps me going is little things. For example, I can hear somebody's story, and I can tell they're having a hard time. Afterwards, I will ask them out for coffee. Do you want to go out for coffee? Mm-hmm. Do you feel comfortable, you know, talking to me, stuff like that? Those little things really help, you know, for me. It really helped because sometimes sometime we want the whole world to listen to us, and, and most of the time that doesn't happen. But people in my life had check up on me, because I remember when I went through cancer treatment, and my partner that then is African American, that's the reason why my family didn't talk to me for 20 years, because of racism. And then what happened is I was in a doctor's appointment, and... One of the receptionists told me, oh, do you have somebody taking care of you? And so, said, yeah, my wife is taking care of me. And then she made the comment, if you were not gay, you would not have cancer. Oh, you know. Wow. wow. And so what I did, I said, how come babies have cancer? You tell me. You know, you tell me. Because they're queer. <laughs> because you know, and so I made a complaint. I went up, and the secretary happened to be my friend, who's the secretary of the director, and I told her what happened that so what they did because I was going to my chemo, I had stage for cancer I didn't even know if i'm going to leave, so what happened is we wrote a letter saying that that they all need training how to deal with LGBTQ community. This is at Mounts. this is at St. Luke's Hospital. It happened when I was going to my cancer. So they changed it. They start, they start taking training, little things like that, you know what I mean? And having mentors too, it really helped me. I have Cecilia, I'm very fortunate because she was a commissioner at that time. When I was at Human Rights Commission, I have Anjali coming along the way. I had a lot of role models in my life. And when I'm tired, all I had to do is look at it okay, if they can do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But what gives me hope is the young people, you know, taking them out for coffee, talking to them, and then. They want to know. They ask a lot of questions. They call me up when they're having a hard time, you know, and I'm there for them because my mentor was there for me mm-hmm. when I was having a hard time. <clears throat> so it's really important we stick together. It's really important in the community we help each other out. That's really important. So I'm grateful that I have this community, and this community has been good to me. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
4: Can I add add one quick thing real quick? I I really want to call in and call out or call out and call in. However you look at it, don't get upset. (laughs) For the LGBT cis folks, uh, and I kind of take my own example. 20 years ago when I was in the Bay Area transitioning and showing up at I didn't have 11 gay brothers. I wish I did. I would show up with a whole bunch of gay cis men and they would not be comfortable with me sitting with a pink sari at the table because they didn't want to be They're working with their own journey of coming out or not coming out. And so I really call on the community right here, the LGBT community where you're cis, to really check on your trans siblings, to really center them, to hear their stories and to really understand the struggles we go through because we are still very marginalized especially when you're not white and i think that's the only way we are going to collectively come to tell the greater world that we are here we have always been here we've always existed uh, but we have to work through the transphobia in our own community it is rampant um and i call on all the folks that you know uh, What are there, 42 organizations, LGBT organizations in San Francisco? To really have an introspection or a circumspection, whatever you think is healthy for your organization to understand what your programs are and if they're really trans-centering, trans-inclusive, and most importantly, Mm. trans-led. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our program, and I think those are really, really great responses and answers. We can all take something from it. But most importantly, go out and love one another and listen to each other, and then we can start doing the work. Um, I want to thank Morningstar Vansel. Thank you so much for being on this panel, Cecilia Chung and Anjali Rimi. So let's give our speakers another round of applause. Thank you to all of you for joining us here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And thank you to all of you online for joining us. And now I leave John with the last words.
1: Well, my last words are also going to be thank you. I want to, again, share our thanks for Gilead Sciences for their great support, uh, Movable Inc. for helping make today's program possible, and our community partners at Open House and the Open House Leadership Council on Queerness, Race, and Privilege. You can find out more uh, Michelle Miao shows coming up. We've got some great stuff planned and even more that are in the works. Go to commonwealthclub.org MMS. Take care. Be good to each other. We'll see you again in the future. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you.